Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast. Summer is almost over, but the political situation is about to heat up. In just a few short weeks, the UK will be leaving the EU without a deal. And that leaves many unanswered questions for employers regarding future access to skilled talent, migration, and much more. This month, we talk all things Brexit with Madeline Sumption, director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford, and Gerwin Davies, public policy advisor for the CIPD, to learn how employers can prepare themselves. And with technology coming on in leaps and bounds, we're going to discuss how virtual reality can be a game changer for learning and development, and in some areas you might not expect. And that's with Mark Poole and Craig Piper from Lloyd's Banking Group. And Tim Pointer's going to return with Tim's Pointers, and that's all to come. But first, Brexit. You might feel you've already heard enough about it, but for many employers, the hard work has yet to reach its climax. The possibility of a no deal at the end of October means that many unanswered questions about future access to talent have become much more urgent. In extreme circumstances, they could lose access to the people they need at really short notice. We're joined by Madeline Sumption, Director of Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford, and Gerwin Davies, Public Policy Advisor for the CIPD, to discuss what a no-deal Brexit would mean for employers and how businesses can start preparing ahead of October. Welcome and thanks for both of you for joining us. So let me ask both of you, first of all, what your understanding is of the current political situation around Brexit and how you would assess the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit versus an extension of the current deadline or a deal being reached in time. Well, I think nobody really knows. It's impossible to tell what the political prospects are, as recent history has shown. Um, But what we can do is say that a no-deal Brexit scenario is very possible and that organisations should be preparing for the changes that will be brought about by this scenario, specifically around the settlement scheme and what happens to EU nationals when they arrive after 31st October. I think it's it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen at uh, at the moment, but certainly no deal uh, does seem to be a plausible scenario. And actually in immigration, unlike some uh, other areas of government, we, we do know a fair amount about what would happen in policy terms if the UK does leave without a deal. If we can, can we deal with the, the worst case scenario? So if no deal happens, what are the immediate implications for employers and what questions should they be asking and what contingencies should they put in place? Well, it's certainly not helpful for employers that if a no deal scenario were to, to pan out because essentially they have to accelerate their current activity, um, especially in terms of the people that they're hiring. So, so the immediate thing that they should be doing is if they are looking to recruit in the next three months, then they should try and meet that 31st of October deadline to get that EU citizen in the UK so that they they avoid the extra paperwork that would be involved with the European uh, temporary um, leave uh, to remain. Um, In terms of what else uh, they should be doing, clearly they should be communicating with their staff uh, and the EU citizens they employ in particular, given that the deadline will be brought forward by by six months through um, a no-deal Brexit scenario, Uh, and not just communicating, helping their staff, making sure that, for instance, their facilities on site are are available to them, as well as putting them in touch with the the Home Office toolkits that are actually a fantastic resource for them. And looking ahead, further ahead than that, they need to put in place a, a workforce plan to ensure that they are equipped 
for a situation where the supply of EU citizens that they've become accustomed to and a free movement of labour ends. Um, and that will you know, include a variety of, of options, which includes raising pay and improving employment conditions, as we've seen uh, most recently in, in, the, in the official data, but also developing uh, relationships in schools and colleges, improving the brand or the sector or, or the role, which we know um, is unattractive in many cases and does deter uh, local applicants, especially younger applicants, from, from applying, as well as other sort of more radical options, such as the opportunity to automate. Well, I think it might be useful to lay out what we know about what would happen in policy terms if the UK leaves without a deal. And there are two main components to this. So on the one hand, you've got the question of what happens for EU citizens who are already living in the UK. The government policy is that um, even if the UK leaves without a deal, EU citizens who are already here will still be able to stay. The scheme that the government has designed to um, allow them to uh, to apply for status to, to stay in the UK permanently, that will still go ahead. There will be some small differences that probably the most significant one is that the deadline for applying would be brought forward by six months. So instead of having to apply by uh, midway through 2021, EU citizens already living here would have to apply by the end of 2020. And the cutoff date for them to apply for that scheme would also be brought forward to the date when we leave the EU. So if we were to leave at the end of October, that would be the date that someone would have had to have established residence in, in the UK by. But the basic outline of that scheme that is designed to be quite simple to allow EU citizens to apply online to get their status sorted out, the idea is that that will go ahead. The situation for newly arriving EU citizens does depend, especially in the next few years, it depends a fair amount on, on whether there is a deal or not. If we leave without a deal, the, the new immigration system that the government is designing won't kick in straight away. And one of the reasons for that is they can't they can't implement a whole immigration system overnight before they have given documentation to the EU citizens who are already living here. So um, instead, what will happen is there will be um, a, a temporary system which will allow people to, uh, EU citizens, to come to the UK uh, to work in any job and to apply for the right to be here for up to three years. And the idea is that then um, once the new immigration system is, is introduced, and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but the basic idea is it's probably going to be a, a system that's um, much more skill selective, so that's much more restrictive for, for low skilled workers and relatively open for high skilled workers. Once that system is introduced, maybe in, in, in 2021, but who knows precisely, then people would uh, would need to move into that new immigration system if indeed they qualify for it. How quickly do you think we're able to get plans in place to determine who can enter the country in a no-deal Brexit? I'm, I'm thinking particularly of employers who rely a lot on temporary EU staff, perhaps in that run-up to Christmas. So there is no intention to for the government to introduce an entire new immigration system determining, for example, which, you know, that some jobs are eligible and some are not um, the day after a no-deal Brexit. That isn't really feasible. The, the government is working on a timeline of introducing a new immigration system in, in 2021 um, that, that, as I mentioned, would uh, would be skill selective and that would be much more, it would end free movement, would be much more restrictive to uh, towards low-skilled workers and low-wage workers in, in particular. So what would happen um, if there was a no-deal Brexit in, in October, 
then the provisional plans would would kick in. Now, it's quite different from from free movement in in many important respects. Most notably, that it doesn't give people a permanent right to, uh, or you know, the ability to, uh, to to settle here permanently unless they qualify further down the line through um, through the future immigration system. But in some respects, it, it will feel a little bit similar to free movement from an employer perspective. And the the key thing is that it doesn't require people to be in a certain kind of job. So it will still be the case that someone who's coming in to, um, say, work in a hotel or restaurant or work um, in the logistics sector or in food processing, those kinds of jobs, it will be possible for e-citizens to come and, and, and fill those positions in the aftermath of, of a no-deal Brexit. Even if in the longer term, say three or four years down the line, the expectation is that that will become a lot harder. The reason why the 31st of October date is, is important is that it allows EU citizens that arrive before that date, that date to apply for pre-settled status, which then allows them after five years of living here to apply for settled status. So it's a seamless transition. Under European temporary leave to remain, they are, they are allowed to live and work here for up to three years, and then they join the immigration system, which is, as Madeline has pointed out, is skills-based and actually could feasibly prevent them from remaining or coming to the UK. That's quite important because there will be, a, if we leave without a deal, there will be a lot of people, I think, who, who come in under the, the provisional system and who are not eligible for whatever happens next. And we won't necessarily know at the point they enter whether they're going to be eligible because that the shape of that future immigration system hasn't yet been finalised. Regardless of a deal... How well are employers doing in in mitigating the effects of reduced EU migration and which sectors do you think are going to be most affected by that? Well, all the evidence that that we've accumulated to date suggests that many employers are still in wait-and-see mode. Uh, Levels of awareness of the immigration white paper proposals is extremely low Mm. and it seems that due to the unpredictability of the politics of this over the last couple of years. Some employers are almost burying their heads in in the sand and and actually waiting for that final political outcome to actually undertake any sort of proactive steps to to mitigate that that potential impact. But that comes with risks, of course, and and we are, well, less than 18 months away now from the introduction of of migration restrictions, which, to answer your other question, will undoubtedly hit low-skilled employers hardest of all, given the introduction of a minimum salary and skill threshold. But it is also important to point out that I think the narrative is that it will reduce substantially or even eliminate low-skilled employment. There there are safety valves available to, to employers further down the line, which certainly don't go as far as free movement, but will certainly allow feasibly anyway, if the immigration white paper proposals come to to fruition, allow all 18 to 30 year olds within the EU to come to live and work in the UK without a job offer for a period of up to two years, which is actually very generous given where we were when Brexit initially happened. Madeline, do you think there are any any types of businesses that are going to be in for a rude awakening? I think it will be quite a challenge over the next several years for businesses to transition to to a new immigration system that you know, is expected to be substantially different. The, over the last 15 years or so, the UK has had 
pretty substantial levels of, of migration from EU countries into low-skilled and middle-skilled jobs that may not be eligible under the under the future immigration system. And many of the employers in those in industries, particularly industries that rely on um, on low-wage workers, industries like retail and hospitality, for example, seasonal agricultural work. Uh, many of those industries have developed business models that really rely on those workers. Now, if you look around the world, the idea of having a skill selective immigration system that's much more restrictive than free movement um, and that doesn't permit so many people to come in to low wage positions. It's not amazingly radical. I mean, there are a lot of countries that do this. It's quite standard practice for governments to be much more open on high skilled and relatively restrictive on, on low skilled. Um, I think the big question for businesses in the UK is how they make that transition, um, how you get from here to there, given that they are already reliant on, on a low-skilled workforce. And um, one of the policies that the government has proposed to help facilitate this transition is a system of temporary migration. So both the youth mobility scheme that Gerwin mentioned, but um, also a, a one-year program that would be designed to let EU citizens to, to come in for either self-employment or um, or to work in, in any job. Um, we don't know how long that scheme will be in place, but the idea is that that will facilitate a transition. That said, um, there is obviously the possibility that it will simply delay a, a transition and that then if the system of temporary migration that is expected to be introduced over the short run is removed that then they may simply experience the the shock of having to transition to a, a workforce less reliant on, on low skilled workers that that would just occur at a later point. I guess one of the points that you've both brought up is we're kind of in this uh, absence of knowing really what the future visa regime is going to look like, what's your best guess of that type of visa regime kind of going forward that we're going to end up with? And will we see a differentiation between EU and non-EU migration? Well, my personal view is that the final outcome of uh, government's post-Brexit immigration policy will not be too different to what is contained in the white paper. And that suggests that we will see a bridging between EU and non-EU. And that's important because while migration restrictions will hit the low-skilled employers particularly hard, as, as Madeleine said, who many of whom employ a relatively high proportion of EU citizens, it's also true that there's a significant minority of, of winners in this, in that employers who primarily recruit non-EU citizens will benefit from the skill threshold coming down from graduate level occupations to A-level, so it's RQF level, level three. But also we have a recruitment process which takes up to 14, 15 weeks, and that looks set to come down to just four through a variety of means one being a move to a more digital process, uh, another being to remove the resident labour market test, which many of our members would support in terms of uh, cutting down the amount of time it takes to recruit somebody from, from overseas. But undoubtedly, overall, it will uh, depress uh, demand for overseas workers because uh, whichever way you cut it, the administrative and cost burden for many will, will, will deter them, especially small employers who uh, will be very daunted by this prospect. And also the uh, there's just the you know the, the overall navigation and, and 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 costs which range from the visas, the sponsorship license, the immigration 
health uh, charge, the skills charge, there's a variety of costs which I think employers will need to consider before they recruit non-UK workers. I would agree with that. And I think the the overall picture of what we'll see for high skilled workers is that for for employers who are already hiring non-EU citizens under the existing system, they will see that system get more liberal. For employers who are hiring EU citizens, they will see that system get more restrictive and more expensive in the sense that free movement is pretty much as unrestrictive as, as you can get. And there's very little paperwork associated with it. Employers can just hire people in the same way that they would hire a, a UK citizen. So even if someone is eligible under the new system, so for example, if they're in a in a skilled job that pays uh, whatever the salary threshold is, TBD, then they can get those workers in, but they will still have to pay a fair amount. So I think under any scenarios, we're, we're likely to see a decrease in the number of skilled EU citizens coming to the country, even if in principle they're eligible under that new system. And then I guess one of my final questions is we've had the conversation around Around what the blanket salary cap is going to look like. And there have been a couple numbers thrown around as this would be 31k. And I think most recently it's been 36k kind of thrown uh, saying this is what we would have to see. Are we likely to see a blanket salary cap imposed? And how difficult is this going to be for employers if it's set too high? And kind of how high is too high? Because many would argue that 36 and even 31 is quite high when you look at kind of the average rate of pay currently in the UK. Well, you're right. It it, it lies above you know, the median salary in terms of full-time occupations. Where the government is heading, who knows, because we've got a, a new cab and a, and a new Home Secretary. Certainly, until recently, the indications were that the Home Office were perhaps looking at lowering the, the salary threshold given the response from employers. I think the question is whether they adopt you know, a blanket approach, whether that be 30,000, 31,000 or 26 or, or 36, or perhaps be more flexible in terms of lowering just for shortage occupations. The Migration Advisory Committee recently published a report which showed you know, a huge increase in the number of shortage occupations, which is not surprising given that unemployment is at a record low. We know from our own data that recruitment recruitment difficulties have been edging up constantly for the past few years. And overall, it'd be very difficult to argue, I think, with an approach which certainly allows employers a bit more leeway in terms of recruiting for skilled staff that they can't find in the UK for that lower salary, as opposed to perhaps adopting a more blanket approach for, for, for everybody, which probably you know benefits the economy less overall, I would argue. I think from my perspective, I would say there isn't, there's not a single right answer when it comes to salary thresholds, and there are pros and cons of taking different approaches. Um, salary thresholds, one of the one of the reasons it's difficult to set them is they're trying to achieve different things. So on the one hand, a salary threshold is used in the UK immigration system as basically a definition of skill. So it's a way of, of checking that, that someone is really skilled. And that um, is quite useful for the government because it's much easier to verify 
than the employer's assertion about what someone's occupation is, where the, the distinction between a high-skilled and a middle-skilled and an upper-middle or lower-skilled occupation can sometimes be a bit fuzzy, whereas the salary, assuming that you know there's compliance with, with the payment of salaries, the, the salary is a, a quantifiable thing that you can that you can check. So that's one reason that salary thresholds are in there. But then, of course, there are other reasons, for example, making sure that migrant workers are being paid the appropriate rate for a particular occupation, they're not being underpaid relative to your average worker in the in the British labour market. And so that's, you know, there's never going to be a, a single answer that, that will satisfy the, the various different things that the government wants from that system. And I think, again, there, there's a trade-off between having a, a more complex system, maybe with different rates, both for different occupations, different locations in the UK, you know, people with different characteristics, for example, someone with a fewer years of, of experience. So on the one hand, you could have a very complex system that takes into account all of those things. Now, that may have some benefits in terms of being more closely tailored to what we think are the appropriate rates or the kind of standard average rates of pay in, in different different circumstances. On the other hand, it's also more complicated and um, it could be more difficult for employers to understand, particularly when you may have the same work worker transitioning from one rate to another as, for example, they um, they get older and more experienced. So for all of those reasons, I think, you know, this is one of those areas where there's never going to be a single right answer. What you just said, Madeleine, is, is, is absolutely right in terms of this tension between complexity and simplicity. But I would add that you, know, you mentioned the prospect of, of a regional salary threshold. If you look at the earnings across the country, there's actually relatively consistent uniformity across the UK, apart from London and the southeast, which doesn't really merit the case for a regional salary threshold, whereas you know, the shortage occupations, given the specific needs, given that employers are having immense difficulty filling those positions, does. So, uh, you know, of the two, I think the, the, the shortage occupation is a, is a stronger argument. I think that's really interesting, and I kind of can't wait to see how employers and even really the government is going to really handle kind of this going forward. And I wanted to thank both of you for giving us your insight, because I think it's a very complicated system that we're going to have to come to grips with in the next, oh, I think it's eight weeks now. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. It's... It's these rumours about the restructure. Things aren't great for me at the moment, and now this, I just don't need it. Cheer up. It's only a rumour. Let's see what actually happens. Well, it might not be too bad. Might give me some more time to spend with the grandkids. With the redundancy money, I might go on a cruise. Always fancied that. That clip you just heard was real audio used in skills training for staff at Lloyds Banking Group by L&D tech specialist Make Real VR. Over the last few years, VR has exploded in popularity and headsets have made their way into homes with the development of increasingly advanced video games. But the technology is being used for far more than just entertainment. Businesses have utilised VR and augmented reality to take traditional learning in the classroom and put employees in a virtual space so they can interact and learn from the environment around them. The effect is a completely immersive digital experience to allow employees to develop essential skills without having to perform the task in reality. And it's not just about technical training. It can help with core so-called soft skills too, 
but is there any evidence it's a viable long-term solution rather than just a gimmick? Here to discuss with us is Mark Poole, Learning and Design Manager, and Craig Piper, Learning Delivery Manager for Lloyd's Banking Group, to discuss how the bank incorporates VR to enhance their soft skills training for staff. So welcome. Hello. 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 We're really interested in the VR training at Lloyd's Banking Group. What inspired you to decide on VR training as opposed to that traditional face-to-face module method? Okay, so I think uh, our strategy generally has actually been to implement virtual reality as part of our face-to-face offering. So we don't see this as an alternative to -to face-to-face. We see it very much blending Mm. with a face-to-face offering. The intensive research that we've done both internally and externally from recognised industry experts suggests that VR is most effective, certainly in the learning context, when it's used as part of a blend. It's that component that's part of a a larger learning intervention. One of the reasons for that is that VR is designed to provide the experience, so to make it as true to life, as real experience as you can get in a safe, simulated environment. But then often you need some supplementary learning to go alongside that, so often facilitated learning, trainers, experts, etc., to really provide that deeper level of understanding. Throughout the years it's been very easy to engage colleagues on an intellectual level in the training room Mm. but what VR really allows us to do is engage them on an emotional level as well and trigger the same kind of emotional responses they might experience in the workplace but in a a learning environment. So combined with an experienced facilitator there to, to guide that learning, VR has tremendous potential to massively enhance the the experience and the learning that's gained. I think a lot of our listeners are thinking VR and augmented reality have been around for many years, but it's come into its own right with many businesses utilizing it in their L&D initiatives kind of in the past year or so. Why do you think so many employers are using it now more than ever? As as you say, virtual reality is not new. It's been around for decades. Uh, Since the early days of flight simulators, that's an example of virtual reality. But what's important now is that virtual reality is affordable and it's more accessible than ever has been before. Computer technology, of course, has continued to evolve. It's got more advanced. The introduction, the rise of smartphones has been a key enabler for that. And also the video game industry as well. That Mm. has sort of been a key driver to sort of take VR to the people and immerse people within, within the experience itself. And I think even... Even in the experiences that we found, we, we introduced virtuality from the start of 2019. We started with it deploying to the Oculus Rift, which although was a really immersive, really good product, it, it wasn't necessarily logistically viable for us to roll out on mass on scale because it needed sensors, it needed a high-powered laptop to connect it, so lots of additional hardware that was needed to really make that work. I think what could be a game-changer is the launch of the Oculus Quest, which mm. was launched in June 2019, and that sort of takes away the need to plug to an external laptop that the headset is much more affordable it doesn't need to be tethered to anything and it's much more portable compact and much more logistically viable for for organizations and corporate organizations to, to maximize the use of in your experience what benefits does vr training give employers in the workforce that traditionally training has lacked in the past i would say that uh, that vr is the closest thing you can get to the real thing without it being the real thing so you know as i've been training colleagues in Lloyd's Banking Group for the last 15 years and I sure, I'm sure most of, uh, most of everybody out there will remember with true horror the role play. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no one <laughs> likes to do that. Nobody. So VR allows us to put people in situations 
but take away that embarrassment factor, take away the cringe factor, and take away the random element of the roleplay being as good as the person you're roleplaying with. Because now everybody gets the same experience. And I think building on that as well, I think it's the opportunity to fail safely. So I think Craig mentioned there about the embarrassment of being in a role play. With a VR experience, it's fully immersive. So of course you're taken to to that situation, to that environment but it really does give you that ability to fail safely. And we've seen lots of comments from and feedback from our learners, from our colleagues. They're really saying the same thing, that it's, it's a safe environment. They feel secure in it. They don't have that embarrassment of, of failing or getting it wrong. And, mm. and one of the key ways to learn is actually to learn from your mistakes. Mm. So to give that opportunity to make the mistakes, but in a completely safe, simulated, secure environment without having to share that shame with other people, if you like. I think has been really effective. I think the key thing to remember is not just to be wowed by the technology. So VR is fun, it's enjoyable, it's entertaining and naturally colleagues will enjoy completing VR. They will naturally enjoy going through that experience because they've never really done it before. Certainly Mm. in the corporate environment um, and a lot of the feedback from colleagues, yeah it's been fun, it's great, it's added a different dynamic to our learning and they've really enjoyed it from that perspective. But I think the important thing is to make sure that you've got a really valid and viable use case as to where VR will really add the most value to your program. And that's probably more important than anything else. It's it's leveraging the technology and the technology is a key part, but it's making sure that you really have that cast iron use case that will add the greatest value both to the organisation but also to the learners. Yes, so many people do argue that there's a pitfall with, with VR training in the sense of that there's a, a cognitive distance between how you experience things in VR to how you experience them in reality. I think what what I'd be quite interested to find out is, did you prepare for that when you rolled out the program? I think if you do, you do VR badly. Yes, yeah. it very much happen. <laughs> but I think there are some definite strategies you can you can employ to overcome that. And I think the first one is it has to start from the design. Mm. The resilience learning that we uh, deployed earlier this year was bespoke built. And we, right from the start, had some really key factors in mind to overcome that cognitive distance. I think, firstly, the story that we created, which was around a a change event going on in the bank, was Mm. one that many of our colleagues would have faced or would have seen other people face. So the story is something they can immediately identify with. We developed a really diverse range of characters to go in the VR, diverse in terms of gender, ethnicity, sexuality, but also to diverse in terms of personality, in terms of outlook, in terms of how optimistic they were feeling about the future. Mm. So although there are six characters within our VR experience on resilience, most colleagues will find one or two that they feel they share something in common with. Yeah. Mm. The environments that we built were all based on photo reference of Lloyds Banking Group offices. I well remember going around our offices taking a bunch of pictures. <laughs> From the start of the experience, colleagues are going to feel like they're in a in a familiar place. But perhaps the most important step we took when working with Make Real was all the dialogue tree was written in-house. So Mm. I and uh, my colleague Jill designed all of the dialogue. So we were able to speak in a way that Lloyds Banking Group colleagues speak, use the jargon that they use. Colleagues kind of feel like, yeah, I I get the way these characters are responding. I get the way they're they're expressing this. Mm. So, you know, firstly, from a design perspective, you have to be really, really clear with your partner, in our case, Make Real, about what you want and how you want it to look and how you want it to to feel. Uh And then secondly, there's the delivery element. So we took a really conscious decision right from the beginning to make 
RVR experience part of a face-to-face -face workshop. And when you have a skilled facilitator in the room, they can do a couple of things. They can prepare colleagues to go through the experience. So in our case, you know, right from 9am when the, when the workshop starts, we'll, we'll tee up, VR is coming. You know, if you haven't tried it before, don't worry, here's, here's what it's going to look like. Colleagues then go through uh, about four or five hours of learning around resilience, and then the VR comes in to consolidate that mm. learning. But of course, what's really important is once they've been through the experience, there's a facilitator there to help them unpack that and make the links between mm. what they've just experienced in the, in the VR world into their everyday working world. Yeah. And then I, I guess one of the things that I, I want to jump off that because you mentioned that it's supplemental to a face-to-face -face learning yeah. is the fact that there kind of still exists this space between a training course because <laughs> a lot of people will have had to have gone through a diversity and inclusion training course and then after the course they sit there and go I learned stuff it was really great but then I'd never use it in real life kind of how have you found that with the training that you take in the classroom and the face-to-face -face module and then also on top of that the virtual reality because there still exists a distance between training but also you've got the initiative of the uh the vr on top of it kind of have you experienced the fact that we have the traditional method we're now supplementing it with a new method but is it really being implemented in the workplace i think i think they really support each other mm. you know i think i think vr enhances face-to-face -face learning, face-to-face -face learning enhances VR. Mm. And I think from the research we've done in speaking to our colleagues who have been through the experience uh, this year, we are confident that they are taking it away. It's, it's been rated very highly. Uh, mm. It's kind of getting kind of 90% positive remarks, 92%. comments, awesome. which is uh, well above the benchmark for learning and many kind of verbatim comments talking about how useful it was, mm. how they're making changes in the workplace. A lot of managers saying, I'm now engaging with my team in a different in a different way. But mm. it's all got to work together. Okay. And it is about being really clear mm. right from the beginning, here's what we want this learning to do and here's how we're gonna make make that work. You cannot do this on the cheap and, and quickly. Yeah. It is about making the real investment. Mm. And I think kind of as more businesses are really looking for the best practices, Lloyd's Banking Group will probably be one of the top people that they look to as you are such a large employer across the UK. So thank you guys for joining us. We, we really do appreciate it. Thank you. No Pleasure. problem. Thank you. And now, on to the man who brings HR money into the worst workplaces, it's Tim Pointer. How are you doing, Tim? That was crowbarred. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, we had much worse puns than that, sir. <laughs> this is why I feel I like want... I know you. I've created... <laughs> There's a I whole want, document. <laughs> I want to know the discard pile if that made the final cut. <laughs> oh, you will find out soon. Um, so... One of our first questions is uh, a reader who submitted to us saying, I worked in an SME and managed a small team of 10. Before I was here, I was overseeing a much larger team with a well-respected company, so I'm pretty used to a fairly rigorous button-up workplace setting. But now I seem to find my new team lacking. I like them as people, but they do not seem to be able to structure or manage projects by themselves, meaning I'm often left having to pick up the slack. 
and I feel like I have to micromanage them just to get anything done. I've had a few conversations with them to find out what it is that they need to achieve and help structure their projects for success, but now I routinely feel like I'm the mum who turns her back only to find the children have gone wild without her watching them. So they're basically watching Peppa Pig. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, a, a, tr- a team of uh, lovable screw-ups, I think is uh, what we were summing it up as, uh, Faulty Tower style. This person had never experienced this before and doesn't know how to manage going forward with the team that they think are actually lovable screw-ups. What do I do? How do I get my team to follow my lead? They're good people, but I'm constantly frustrated at having to do the work. And how do I shore up my patients until they're at the point I don't have to constantly be mothering them? Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. It's a big <laughs> so, problem. <laughs> so this is really, really fascinating. Okay, so... Wow. Okay, let's feel that person's emotion. They've, they're they having to pick up the rest of the team's work. They're feeling that they're basically going behind with a dustpan and brush mm-hmm. trying to, to, you know, to get this to the standard that uh, they can see that things need to be uh, delivered to. Uh, I suppose there are a number of points. The first one would be really clear about expectations. And what I'd say to the individual is, whose expectations are we managing to? Because different organisations do have different versions of what good looks like. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you come in from one organisation to another and you've been trained and have expectations, you know, a certain way. And you go into another organisation and you're like, oh, so you don't do decks here in terms of the way that you present information. It's much more conversational. There's less structure. So I have to find a way. Um, Oh, you make decisions outside of the meeting room rather than in the meeting room and therefore I need to build relationships and find a ways of doing stuff before we come together and that you know all of these little things that they never this stuff isn't on the tin they don't tell you this before you join the organization you have to work it out once mm. you're once you're there how do we get stuff done here so partly it might be working out what are the standards of the organization rather than his or her own standards what's the right standard for here? Because the team have been there longer than this relatively new manager has been. So perhaps they've got it right. We don't know that. Um, but if it's clear, and this is a conversation that they're having with you know, their ops director, their, their MD, whomever it is, that they need to pick up the, the standard they're delivering to, there are you know, a number of ways that we could do that. One would be, re- be really clear as to what those expectations are. And if they have changed, which it sounds like they are, because it's probably why they brought this person in, why they've changed, why we need to be doing something differently, what's the new expectations, how that's serving the products or services that they're providing in a better way. Is it because they're now working with a different set of customers, for example, who have a different set of expectations? So it help people to understand why they're doing something different. That's number one. Mm. Number two... If the team aren't used to working this way, what development could we put in place to then set out this is the new way of working? So is it about pace? Is it about the way that they're presenting ideas? Is it about the way that they're working across the organisation to bring more stakeholders in so that, the, so that the, the way of working has a greater chance of succeeding once it's been put into place? What exactly do they want to be different? And I would recommend not just doing that herself or himself, but bringing in the other stakeholders into that training so it's the business talking to the team rather than him or her talking to the team. Mm. Much more likely to succeed. And then the final suggestion I'd have is that if there is a chance to bring one new person into the team, the next time that there is a vacancy or the next time that there's a chance to bring 
anybody in a uh, contractor or a consultant or whoever it is really thinking about who that person is to get someone else on their side who's speaking the same language that they speak again so it's more likely to integrate into the business so those those would be my three ideas mm. and then i guess one of my questions kind of bouncing off the end of that query is kind of the ability to shore up patients because it sounds like it's kind of becoming a very volatile, almost emotional thing where they feel like they're now in this position of mothering, which can be a very difficult working relationship to kind of differentiate between I feel like I have to micromanage as a manager, but also I'm very protective of my team, which kind of goes into that parental kind of figure. How would you suggest going forward? Because that can be a very difficult relationship for any manager to yeah, really think of. I feel of. drained listening to this question. I can feel the emotion. I can feel it's taking its toll on on, on the manager mm. just by the language they're choosing uh, to use. You know, this is not a happy place right now. Two things. The first would be don't carry it on your own. There will be people within the team who are more interested, more amenable, perhaps, to the new way of working. Identify who you can bring on your side quickly. Mm. And secondly, don't carry this on your own. Find other people within the organisation who share that understanding of where the standards are going to be. Sometimes you need to bring someone in, not necessarily from inside, but from outside the organisation. If you can bring a customer into one of your meetings and hear it from a customer's expectations of this is the standard that we need the product or services to be delivered at and this is why it's so compelling and it's so clear why we have to make the change what did you think of that maggie i don't know brexit is really confusing as always and i hope that i am not one of the few immigrants that has to worry about suddenly earning 36k (laughs) and vr it's it's for more than video games I know. Uh, it's crazy. I don't know how I'm going to have a conversation. And thank God I don't have to role play. Who would have thought that you could learn from video games, hey? Yeah, and all those crazy Tim pointers. I Most calm guy I've ever seen in my entire life. And bless him for figuring out our workplace problems. He didn't appreciate our puns, though, I don't feel. He will come to learn to love me. <laughs> Point him in the right direction. Ha! Ha ha! And that's it for this edition of That HR Podcast. Thanks to Madeline Sumption, Gerwin Davies, Mark Poole, Craig Piper, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Keep up to date on all things HR and That HR Podcast on our website. Peoplemanagement.co.uk And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to see your comments. My name is Maggie Baska. I'm Lily Howlett, and the producer for this episode was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, with special thanks to Sarah Miles, also from Rethink Audio, for her additional support on this episode. And we will see you next month. Bye! 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 Bye. Bye. <laughs>